The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. We're always hearing about ESG for corporations, for small business, and sometimes even for individuals. ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. Jay, should we be concerned about this when we hear about ESG being forced on society? Yes, Tom, we should be very concerned. This is one of the biggest uh, attack of the woke people trying to subdue normal commerce uh, to take over the whole economy, uh, not based on earnings or anything like that, but based on political outlook and the way companies run things. And it's been going on in China now for a couple of years. Every in China gets a score. They have facial recognition cameras on every street corner. Uh, it is absolutely detestable, and I'm really excited. We have an expert on this situation with us uh, on the program today, Tom. So go ahead and introduce him. Yeah, sure. Our guest today is Donald Kendall. Donald is a research fellow for Heartland Socialist Research Center and a host of Heartland's In the Tank podcast. He also served as a contributor to Glenn Beck's latest two books, Arguing with Socialists and The Great Reset, Joe Biden and the Rise of 21st Century Fascism. Besides that, Donnie, or Donald Kendall, is a graphic designer with the Heartland Institute. So welcome to the show, Donald. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I got to wear a lot of hats over here at Heartland. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Donald, give our audience a brief summary of what ESG is all about in case they're unfamiliar and why it is an attack of the woke folks on all of society. Yeah, you know, I'll admit uh, when I first heard about ESG, I just wrote it off as some investment jargon that was meaningless to me. I don't have a whole lot of stock, so what do I care about ESG? But then as we started working with Glenn Beck on the Great Reset book, we realized how large in scope and how powerful a scheme like this really is. And, and like the the insidious nature of it really came to the forefront once we realized just you know how powerful this type of system is. So I, I think that you were on the right path when you were equating this to kind of the, the Chinese social credit system going on in China. I, I think that this is kind of the easiest way to think about ESG is in that context. So like you were saying, in China, they developed a system to reward and punish their citizens based on a number of criteria. Uh, what laws they break, what media they consume, uh, have they ever said anything bad about the ruling party, et cetera, et cetera. 
And then that information is used to generate a score for these people. And then based on that score, the Chinese citizens are either awarded privileges in society or penalized. In some cases, uh, if, if your score is too low, maybe you're prohibited from using certain public transit or uh, maybe you're prohibited from buying a house in certain areas. So it's, it was developed as a way for the Chinese Communist Party to control their citizenry. So ESG oh. is the same concept, but just applied to businesses. You already mentioned it stands for environmental, societal, and governance metrics. Uh, these categories are comprised of a dozens of different measurements. For example, the environmental metrics can include you know, a company's carbon footprint, their water usage, uh, waste material, you know, and, and pollution type things that you can measure. The societal and uh, governance metrics can include, you know, do you pay your employees high enough wages? What are the working conditions like? Do you have the proper levels of diversity in your workforce? Do you have the proper ratio of Hispanics to Asians on your board of directors? And I'm not even kidding about some of these. Those, yeah. are, those are like real ones. And, you know, in some of them, uh, and I, I'll, I'll defend this a little bit. Some of them you could see like, okay, yeah, I mean, shouldn't we be against, you know, an overabundance of waste material? Like, shouldn't that be like something that we pay attention to? But when you, when you look at the system as a whole, how do you weight one metric towards another one? You know, wh wh where does child slavery metric match up with carbon footprint? Which one's weighted heavier than the others? So what you have is a very subjective way of measuring a company and judging a company's worth, as opposed to the objective way that we've been doing for however many years that we've been doing uh, capitalism here. Uh, you mentioned it, Jay, about the idea of judging businesses based on their financials. That's a very objective way to judge companies. And now we're trying to replace it with this very subjective way. So all of these inputs are calculated to determine ESG score, which could be used by banks or other financial institutions, investment firms, anything like that, to judge that company and determine whether or not they're worthy of capital, banking services, et cetera, et cetera. And just like the Chinese system, the intent of ESG credit system is to control businesses, ensuring that they're all marching in lockstep in the same agenda and controlling society by extension. So once I like got a full grasp of all of that, it just like blew my mind. Like this is the way that they're trying to control society here. Buried in your outstanding description uh, for our audience, I would guess that while perhaps half of our audience know the term ESG, I would guess that less than 20% understand it in the detail you described it. And buried in your explanation is the word insidious, because that is the word I use in, in describing it. It's really terrible. I believe it's really promoting socialism. And you assist in heading up a Heartland Institute Center to combat socialism. Tell us what your center does, Donald. Yeah, you know, when we started the Socialism Research Center, we did it because it appeared as though socialism was making significant ground in America. AOC, Bernie Sanders, they were the media darlings. Uh, you know, everyone was super interested in what they had to say. And we've always kind of prided ourselves on staying on the cutting edge of this type of stuff. So we thought we were a little ahead of the game of trying to kind of cut off the AOC and the Bernie Sanders and all their repeated talking points and all of that. And then just a couple of years ago, towards the beginning of the pandemic, we caught wind of the concept of the Great Reset, 
which is a term that's being used by far too many extremely influential types. Uh, Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum, Prince Charles, a whole bunch of other like Davos elite type people. And uh, so we're just like, why are they all saying this? So we pursued the story. And we uncovered that this was all about overhauling capitalism as we know it. They call it shareholder capitalism and fundamentally transforming it into stakeholder capitalism. This is supposedly a type of capitalism that takes everybody into account. And this transformation was being driven by ESG credit system. So when we realized the power of the system and the stated goals of the system, We started to kind of refer to it just uh, in the office to each other as like, this is their plan for 21st century socialism. Since then, as we learned more about it, we've kind of shifted and and called it, uh, I think, a little bit more accurate term. We're calling it 21st century fascism. So along with rebutting your typical socialism, Marxism, anti-capitalist rhetoric on a daily basis, we've also spent a massive amount of time, been spending a massive amount of time trying to uh, combat this, this ESG stuff. Well, I would go a step further, and I'm promoting it in everything I do, that socialism is a light term for communism, and what we're really talking about is communism. And I want to read you a statement that was given in 1944 by Alexander Trachtenberg speaking at the National Convention of Communist Parties in Madison Square Garden in New York City in 1944. And this is very scary, but this is uh, 80 years ago. And Trachtenberg said, in front of this communist convention, when we get ready to take the United States, we will not take you under the label of communism. We will not take you under the label of socialism. We will take the United States under labels we have made very lovable. (laughs) We will take it under liberalism, under progressivism, under democracy, but we will take it. That is scary to think that in 1944, they were laying the groundwork for the kind of things we're seeing today. The Great Reset, your center to combat socialism. Give me your thoughts about the fact that the groundwork was laid so many years ago to take over the United States, which appears to be happening today. There is no doubt about that. Uh, One thing that I've remarked ever since entering this whole field of public policy and everything that uh, relates to it is that the left or, or, uh, you know, in general, socialists and specifically, they are very good when it comes to the linguistical battles. And, you know, we see that even with all this great reset stuff, when they talk about, you know, they label it as stakeholder capitalism. I mean, that to me is just somebody that sees that headline being a capitalist, like, okay, yeah, I can get behind that. When in reality, like I had mentioned, that this is actually a 21st century form of fascism. Of course, they're not going to call it that. There's no way that they're going to be able to shine that up and nice enough. So they have to put a very rosy term on it, like stakeholder capitalism. I've also heard it referred to as inclusive capitalism. And they, they know that they're dealing with business people a lot when it comes to this scheme in particular. So it doesn't surprise me that they're going to try to package it up in a way that would sell it to your average business leader or something like that. 
And then as for this being stated in 1944, a crazy thing is that people have predicted systems like this Great Reset concept decades and decades and decades ago. Uh, Stuart Chase, who is referenced in the Great Reset book in the 30s, the 1930s, talked about a system that he referred to as System X that contained a lot of the same elements that exist now in this Great Reset thing. One thing that I, I, I want to bring up is that authoritarians throughout history have always seemingly had the same goal. They, they say that they can make society better. They just need to wield massive control or, and shape the economy and society in their own image. And then once they do that, everything will be rosy. And of course, history is littered with failure whenever they try this. And I think that that's mostly because they didn't have the necessary tools to actually achieve that control that they need in an effective manner. And I, I'm, I'm afraid to say this, but I think ESG is that tool chest that they need for the total control that's envisioned by this legacy of authoritarians throughout history. We used to think of folks in the financial field as being quite conservative. Mm -hmm. That appears to have changed. I don't understand it. I don't understand where financial people, once conservative, not liked by the liberals, all of a sudden are part of the whole liberal movement. Could you explain that to our audience, Donald? Yeah, you know, it's, it's an interesting question. I've got two slightly different thoughts on that. Uh, one is probably a little bit more, I don't know, troubling than the other one. Cynical, I should say. So one first thought is I think this comes down to uh, making money for these massive corporations. They, uh, they have developed what equates to just a croniest machine on steroids. And they can bend and manipulate the system to line their own pockets while forcing out their competition. And historically, you know, companies have resisted regulations and onerous rules because it hurts their bottom line. But uh, we have seen how big businesses could actually benefit from rules and regulations because those rules and regulations hurt their competitors more than it hurts them. Some of the examples that are thrown around are some like big box retail stores that are actually in favor of increasing minimum wage, because while they can stomach those extra costs, no problem, their smaller competitor down the street, mom and pop shop can't. Uh, mm -hmm. That different you know, tax loophole type things that they have teams of lawyers that are in charge of, you know, so that we could see examples of this where uh, you know, big businesses can use these cronious type systems to their advantage. And I think that that is, at least for a lot of these companies that are involved, I think that you could probably um, explain their position on all of this stuff just by having that idea. But my second thought is that they're essentially being forced to play this game. If they don't play it, they risk being shunned by the community, losing access to financial companies, loans and capital, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's the, the other angle to this. Even people that kind of see the, you know, what the system means and, and what it's trying to do, they're just not in a position to say no. They have to for their own life of their business. Isn't those, the net, those are my two leading theories. Yeah. Isn't the net result of this likely to be less competition and so higher prices? 100%. 100%. Yeah. I think that, uh, I think that when you really play this out to its logical conclusion point, I think you see massive companies that have cornered their specific sector 
And they're held up as the cornerstone of that sector where everyone else is just on the peripheries and they can't compete and they're just scrambling for scraps. Controlling one large company as opposed to a thousand small companies from a central planning, top-down governance type of perspective is so much easier. Mm -hmm. You know, it strikes me that social justice warriors, which I guess is a little bit of an oxymoron because they often seem to not care about the poor and the disadvantaged in society. They should be really concerned when the mom and pop businesses are being pushed out of business and prices are rising for everyone. I mean, surely this is a social, a real social justice issue. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you would have thought that that would have come to a head during the pandemic, where you see these massive corporations, the Amazons of the world, uh, the bigger the company, the better they fared the pandemic lockdowns, whereas these mom and pop shops and these restaurants that just have one store and one local location that that just can't keep their head above water and they go under like that. That should have been the biggest wake up call to all of this. You you would have figured that you would have seen a lot of people uh, from all sides of the aisle coming to the defense. But it seemed like one side of that aisle was uh, suspiciously quiet when Mm -hmm. uh, when all of that was going down. Yeah. Now, why is it that the left are not standing up? Because if you look at things like the climate scare, I mean, it's increasing prices everywhere. It's closing down cheap, inexpensive power. Why do you think the left are, in fact, letting these things go? They're giving them a buy so that they don't stand up for social justice. Uh, Your guess is as good as mine. Um, I think that a lot of this just comes down to kind of ignorance of the, the systems that are in play here. I am a little bit dumbfounded on that. I will say that I am heartened a little bit by even some people on the left. Once they look at this ESG stuff and they understand the implications of it, they're like, I'm not really sure that I like that. So yeah. even though even though the, the Great Reset ESG paints itself up like this social justice cause, this, uh, you know, trying to protect the environment type of cause. Some people look at it and they, they realize that, no, this, this is an insidious thing. And these big businesses are using this to their advantage to squash out competition and all the like. I have seen a couple of people uh, that are very much on the left see all of this and say, I don't think I like this. And mm-hmm. I actually have a little bit of a theory. Uh, I, I don't know if I would ever want to test this theory, but if you were to sit down AOC and the Bernie Sanders, like the actual card carrying socialists and explain to them what this ESG system is, I'm not entirely sure that they would like it. Mm-hmm. So we need people like Michael Moore, who directed the film Planet of the Humans. We need more people on the left to actually recognize what's going on. So it sounds like We should be also communicating with the left to explain the horrible impact of these different approaches. Oh, I do. I I think so. And that that was actually a a very um, fleshed out conversation that we had with Glenn Beck when we were working on this Great Reset book together. Because at first we were just kind of thinking like, oh, like, like I said, it's 21st century socialism. Like this is just their way of pushing through all of the stuff that they want. And then as we like looked into it more and more and more, we're just like, you know what? Like, I think that this is kind of a reaching across the aisle moment. And, uh, you know, maybe we shouldn't like lash out at the socialist types in this book. And maybe there's a, an ability or a, the potential to, to have some bridges and to actually have some bipartisanship when it comes to this. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we'll see. We'll see. Well, I think the arguments against capitalism, and there have always been some, has been the ability to the big guys able to drive out the small. And you just described that 
very well. And I don't think that's free market. I mean, what you described earlier of having taxes and minimum wages and things of that nature, which the big companies like because they can handle it and the small cannot, that is not free market capitalism. And I think that to, to really understand free market, which has is a stool with three legs, you, you've got to have the ability to borrow money, to sell things, a marketplace. You have to have banking. And the big companies game that system. So it really isn't that capitalism is bad. It's just possible for big companies to use it against small companies. I, oh, yeah. I want to go back to your description. I don't think it can be hammered too much to show that this is what they do in China. Now, China started being successful economically when they allowed a certain amount of capitalism into the system to allow companies to make money and support their economy. But it is tyrannical. And you've described that well. I think the more uh, our citizens, our listeners understood that ESG and wokeism is pushing us toward a Chinese system. And I don't think anybody would be in favor of that. I, I think the comparisons even go further than you might even think. You're right. Uh, they they liberalized their markets in China in like the 90s that led to a big growth in their their economy. And, uh, you know, libertarian types thought like, well, this is a great sign. They're going to they're going to learn from that and they're going to they'll love the prosperity and they're going to further liberalize their markets in a free market sense. In reality, it seems like they've struck this balance that uh, they have just enough capitalism to make the ruling party, the Communist Party, look like they're doing a great job. And in reality, those uh, those firms that are in place in China are very strictly controlled by the Communist Party. And to an extent where each company in China on their board has to have a representative of the Chinese Communist Party. And in here with this ESG system going on, we were seeing more and more companies having a ESG compliance officer being hired on as a position to make sure that they're hitting all of their metrics and all of that stuff and keeping accurate measures of all of the, the different things that go into their ESG score. So it's just like that that little comparison right there when I first realized uh, that there's a kind of a, an analogy to be made between those two systems. It was, again, it was just another shocking moment. Every time you look further into this ESG stuff, it just gets creepier and creepier. Wow. So we've got a big job then to explain this to the left, to try and get published in the left. Well, let me, let, well, you know what? Even scarier. When we started all of this stuff, the, the whole great reset, uh, anti-ESG movement, all of, all of this stuff, we thought that when we were talking to conservative types, uh, Republican types, limited government types, that we'd be preaching to the choir. You know, like, hey, this is going on. You got our backs. All right, great. Let's, let's you know, push forward on this. And in reality, we've actually routinely run into conservative types that just dismiss all of this as free markets. Yeah, this is just voluntary interaction. You know, we're not gonna we're not gonna put our, our foot down in this. When in reality, you know, Jay, you already mentioned that this is so far from free markets that it's it's mind-boggling to see a Republican write this off as just free markets. And so we've realized just in the past couple of months. 
that we have a lot of work to do just on our own side when it comes to advocating against all this ESG stuff. Well, this is why I've been promoting the fact that we should call a spade a spade. We're moving toward communism. Nobody likes to hear that. They think, oh, they're going to think you're you know, overreacting to be talking about communism. This is just socialism. There's nothing that horrible about it. It is not. It is communism. It is everything that the Bolshevik revolution tried to implement in Russia in uh, 1917. I don't think we can over-exaggerate how terrible it is, but I have trouble talking to people on our sides, to my friends and colleagues. They're afraid when I use the word communism. They think it's back in the Joe McCarthy era when there was a communist under every rock. And in fact, there was a communist under every rock. And there are now. And I think if we could scare the public into understanding, we are talking about promotion of communism in this country and really all over the world. How do you feel about that? Yeah, well, I, I just like one one other point, and this is this is another troubling development on all of this stuff, is that we've seen stories of people logging into their investment accounts or their 401k accounts and seeing that their account has been given an ESG score. Their personal account has been given an ESG score, and then they're given advice on how to reinvest their funds to make it more in line with ESG. And we've also seen posts from, I think it was Moody's. They like had a blog post that were talking about how individual ESG scores are going to become more and more a thing in the future. And then we've seen ESG kind of tangential ideas that have been floated out about real estate. Is your home ESG compliant? Does it have energy efficient windows and smart meters and insulated roofs, et cetera? And if not, maybe the bank won't provide the mortgage loan needed for someone else to buy your home. So as of now, the major push for ESG is at the business and the corporate level, but I have no doubt that it will eventually cascade to an individual level. I have, I have no doubt about that. So when you're talking about like the controls that could be wielded by a system like this from a corporate level down and from an individual, individual level up, we're talking about a supreme level of control that communists would drool over in the, in the history. So Mm -hmm. I, I, I wouldn't say that like it's exaggerated or anything, But, you know, uh, throughout history, socialism and communism have almost been used as like synonymous terms. In fact, we've got some quotes of like famous communists in history talking about how they're calling themselves a socialist because communism kind of has a negative connotation to it. And I think that communism still retains much of that negative connotation in the general perception And I think that a person that considers themselves a a proud communist will probably likely step away from a lot of those beliefs when they turn 18. But I am afraid that uh, capitalism will continue to be identified as the problem in society uh, when anything goes wrong. Uh, Housing prices are too high. It's not terrible monetary or or public policy that's been going on for decades. It must be capitalism's fault. Healthcare prices too high. Don't blame generations of terrible public policies and government manipulation that has only made problems worse. No, it's capitalism's fault. When energy and gas prices are too high, don't blame the politicians that shut down reliable energy sources or, you know, continue to, to pursue ineffective wind and solar. 
it must be capitalism's fault. So on that end of things, uh, I, I do see us playing like way too much defense when it comes to this. And, uh, you know, if, if you're if your take on this is that we have to actually attack it as to what it is, which is communism. You know, I, I'm not going to quibble over the, the, the term that you're using when you're identifying the problem. Mm-hmm. Just before we go to break. Can you tell me if this is kind of like an ESG score in Canada? If you don't have an injection for COVID, then you cannot fly on a plane. You cannot go on a train. You cannot leave the country. Now, everybody knows that the injection for COVID doesn't actually reduce transmission. So it's not really a matter of controlling the spread of the, of the virus. So in a way, it's just like a virtue signaling. It's just like a control mechanism, a carrot and stick to punish people who haven't been injected according to government mandate. So, I mean, it sounds a little like the ESG type scores. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I am uh, another kind of interest of mine is uh, just kind of like futurism type things. And uh, I, I do tend to have a, I wouldn't say pessimistic view, but a very skeptical view of some of these larger trends that we can see in place. And I think that when we do see like some of these kind of individual um, profiles generated about people, I think that it will come from the healthcare sphere. I mean, we already have a whole lot of different sensors that people voluntarily wear, whether it's a Fitbit or some type of aura ring or something like that, that can track different things in your body, heart rate, blood pressure, that type of stuff. And I could see how that could be utilized by you know, the government or something like that to determine whether or not you are healthy enough, uh, whether or not you are meeting certain guidelines, that they're going to expend some of their very limited resources when it comes to their their government healthcare system to help you when you're when you're sick or something like that. So I could definitely see that, and I think that the idea of them tracking, you know, uh, people whether or not they've gotten injection is kind of the the battering ram to bust down that door for the first time ever. Wow, wow. So we'll go to break. We'll be right back with Donald Kendall. We wouldn't go a day without washing our hands, brushing our teeth, and washing our nose. Well, wait, we wash our nose? Yes, the number one place where bacteria, viruses, and pollen enter the body is through the nose. So the average person breathes over 23,000 times a day. That's 23,000 opportunities for bacteria, viruses, and irritants to get into your nose and make you sick. For an extra layer of protection, wash your nose with Clear. That is Clear, X-L-E-A-R. Clear's drug-free nasal spray features xylitol, an ingredient proven to block adhesion of many nasty bacteria and viruses, and effectively clean, not just rinse like a saline, but wash your nose. Clear nasal spray quickly alleviates congestion, opens your airway, and ensures your body's natural defenses are strong. Read the research studies for yourself at clear.com. That's X-L-E-A-R.com. Protect yourself from the pathogens and junk you breathe. Pick up a bottle for you and your family today. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. 
Donald, I'm a little confused as to why the banking industry and investment groups appear to want to run the country's economy in a woke socialist manner, much like the World Health Organization wants to run our healthcare system. I would at least think there were two sides to the issue and that some people in finance would not like what's going on, but it seems somewhat monolithic. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that a a lot of this is just a screen to garner support from some of the most vocal aspects of, of society. When you expose the plan for what it is, people might respond with, well, you know, we have to do something. The oceans are rising and uh, we're all going to die from climate change. So we have to do something. So I I think that like, you know, that veneer that they put over this scheme is very thin. And I think what what the true agenda that's at play here is what I said at the front end of this, which is this is a crony system on steroids that's intended to be able to usher in a top-down, centralized, controlled type of system that, like I said, authoritarians have been pursuing for a millennia here. So the idea that it's like a woke kind of socialist manner, I think that's just a very surface-level cover screen to get some support when this does kind of enter the public uh, conversation. Uh, Donald, your colleague, Justin Haskins has appeared on Fox TV and especially with Tucker Carlson. How has he obtained so much uh, excellent exposure for your group and for the Heartland Institute? So you're putting me in a position where I have to uh, heap praise on Justin Haskins, which is hard for me to do. But uh, it, it basically comes down to pure elbow grease. I mean, Justin writes like crazy. Uh, He writes like crazy. At one point, he was churning out several op-eds a week, high quality stuff. Sometimes these op-eds, you know, that are published in uh, high profile publications because he spent years, you know, getting those relationships going. Sometimes these op-eds catch the attention of producers that are looking for interesting stories to fill slots on their daily shows. So then he gets on. He does a great job. And now they know that they can go to him in the future and expect a quality interview. That, that's that's how he that broke the seal on the Tucker Carlson. As for Glenn Beck, Justin was given a speech at CPAC years ago. And just by pure chance, Glenn Beck walks in the room, hears Justin talking about the, the Green New Deal and says, hey, maybe we should work together. Yeah, I'm thinking about this book. It's going to be called Arguing with Socialists. I know that you do socialism work at the Heartland Institute. Eh, maybe we should work together. And then these relationships are just mutually beneficial. You know, we bring interesting topics to his attention. He talks about our stuff in front of an audience of millions. There's no real secret sauce here other than, like I said, just pure elbow grease. Can you talk a little bit about your working with Glenn Beck? What was it like? You know, because people, he's a pretty famous character. What What do you think of his work and him? You know, when we first went to Dallas to talk about that Arguing with Socialist book, We went into the room. This is the first time that I've ever met him. We go into his office. Justin had talked to him a handful of times before. And as soon as we sit down, it was just like as if we've known each other for years. It was was just a very familiar atmosphere, just like we were all on the same wavelength. Hey, you know, I think that this is an important thing that we should talk about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that ties in perfectly with this. And it was just like a synergy just right off the bat. 
and, and it was a fantastic experience. Uh, there was one point where I, um, uh, Justin was going to go do an interview. We are in the middle of talking about like notes for the book and all of this stuff. So I just had like 45 minutes one-on-one with Glenn Beck. And we just talked about, you name it, government policies, terrible energy stuff, futurism. He is super into uh, movies and, and he's got his, his office is just filled with different movie memorabilia. He's got like Dorothy's slippers. He's got like the heart of the ocean from Titanic. He's got a couple of uh, droids from Star Wars in the corner. So yeah. I was just like in paradise over here talking to him for 45 minutes. It was the quickest 45 minutes I've ever experienced in my life. As soon as Justin comes back, all right, let's get back to work and we go back to work. And then the Good other balance. thing that I, I need to say about Glenn Beck is that like that guy is a genius. He is a, 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 a camel that just has a, a hump on his back, just filled with information that he's able to recall at a, at a mo- he's like, oh yeah, that they talked about that in this 1945 book by so-and-so he's just like, where did you come up with that? So, <laughs> so dude is a genius. And then also he is an absolute true believer when it comes to all of this stuff. Like yeah. he, he just doesn't put on an act for when he's doing a show or anything like that. Like he takes this stuff as serious as you and I do. He believes that fighting back against ESG and the great reset could be his legacy. And then he is not uh, timid about pursuing that. So it's, it's really. Now that uh, Chris Wallace has left Fox and gone where he always belonged as a socialist at CNN, have you noticed that uh, Fox has gotten more back to its previous conservatism that I felt was uh, it was losing? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. Uh, You might have a better read on this than I do. uh, But I think that the media has become so fluid and just the staggering growth and the choices that that, uh, consumers have when they're looking for news has forced corporate media to become more agile. So it used to be the case where it's like, okay, you know, I agree with 60% of what Fox News has to say, but I have no other option to get news. But now it's like, okay, I agree with 80% of what Fox News says. But guess what? You know, I agree with 90% of what OAN says. So maybe I'll tune in over there. So in this day and age, I think that people have so many options and these corporate giants are just guessing as to what type of content is going to drive the most interest and is going to get the most amount of people tuning in. So can I foresee Fox News leaning more heavily towards the MAGA crowd? Sure. You know, if they think that that's going to drive the most business, then, then sure, maybe they'll do that. Can I foresee Fox News leaning more heavily towards the never Trump crowd? Sure. If, if, if they think that's going to drive the most business, then yeah, I think that maybe they'll do that. But because of the ever-changing landscape, even if you were to convince me that like Fox News is, is going back to some previous state of conservatism, to me, that doesn't necessarily mean that they won't reverse course after six months, depending on the returns of that, uh, of that change. So I'm not entirely sure. I'm not going to hold my breath over anything, but uh, I, I I do understand that in the in the when you're comparing them to the MSNBCs and the CNNs, I'm probably going to turn on Fox News. Mm-hmm. One thing I'm dying to know is whether or not you see young people waking up to all of this. I mean, I'm 69, Jay's in 85. How old are you? I am. Uh, let me do the math. Uh, I think I'm either <laughs> 32 or 33, something. I think 33. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> well, then, do you see very many of your peers waking up to all of this? 
Yeah, you know, I uh, I must run with a good crew because uh, I've got a couple of group chats with a, a handful of friends that are uh, you know very much on the on the same page and very aware of these things going on. I don't know if that's necessarily representative of any you know substantial chunk of the population of my age range, but yeah, I, I, I'm not entirely sure. I know that I've heard statistics talking about like the the Gen Z are a little bit more conservative than the millennial types or anything like that. But uh, I've seen enough TikTok videos to not be uh, you know holding my breath on that account. So I'm not entirely sure. I don't know. I could be hopeful. But I could also be pretty pessimistic, depending on what day you find me. Well, I want to move to a very specific question about something that I know is bothering our entire audience, and that is the price of uh, gasoline. And I have a feeling that the ESG scoring of companies is having an impact on investment in uh, fossil fuels, obviously, The left uh, wants to scare the public about climate change, the biggest fraud ever perpetrated on society. And I think if you're in the business of producing fossil fuel, you get the worst possible ESG score, and therefore you're scaring investment away. Uh, How much do you feel that is, is accurate and really having a negative impact? Oh, I have I have no doubt about that. I mean, that's like very clearly the point of of all of this ESG stuff is to edge them out, edge them out. But the 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 but they're they're crafty. You know, they know that if they were to just completely shut the door on all of this stuff, then uh, that would sound a whole bunch of different alarms. So what I think you're going to see is a death by a thousand cuts type of approach where this very gradually turns up the, the, the burner to, to boil the frog alive type of thing. So to me, when I, when I think about the impact of ESG on oil and gas companies, I think of like a, a sinking life raft where ESG is making the life raft gradually sink and the players of the game are scrambling to stay as squarely in the dry part as possible. And it's, it's, you know, they've sent the signal that like you have to play ball. If you play ball with all of this ESG, we'll let you live a little longer. <laughs> yeah. A little longer. We'll let you stay on the life raft. Well, but, but as that life raft continues to sink and the, and the reins of ESG are twisted tighter and tighter, more oil and gas will go by the wayside. That's just the, yeah. that's just the plan. Well, that's you know, a brilliant, that's a brilliant explanation, but in the end it can't happen. You know, no matter how much they want to do away with fossil fuels, they must fail because we can't run the country on wind and solar, and as at the as the brownouts and blackouts increase across the country, as they definitely will in the coming years, there has to be a point in which the public will come to their senses and realize how absurd it is. And as the years go by, they realize that emissions of carbon dioxide are not warming the world, and none of the terrible predictions are coming true. The question is how much we will have suffered, how much damage we will have suffered before everybody wakes up. But they will wake up. And actually, I think the beginning of the awakening is really going to be the midterm elections in November. I'm predicting at least a 60-vote turnover from Democrats to Republicans, which will give the House the ability to stymie much of the damage that the current administration 
wants to undertake. Now, I know they can't pass legislation on their own, but they can stop the expenditure of any more money based on terrible things that this administration wants to do. In case our listeners have not heard me say it before or unaware, the House of Representatives holds the purse strings of our nation. Can I paint a, a, a more pessimistic uh, uh, way, way that this could progress? Because I think you're right. I think you're right. At some point, no matter how much ESG type stuff and all the different accounting tricks and everything that you're going, you're right. It's going to get to a point where, you know, we just don't have energy. Like if you're going to run all the oil and gas companies out of business, you're, you're just going to have any energy to, uh, uh, to power the country. So what I think would happen, and this is, this is just based on me, you know, theorizing here, but uh, I think that uh, that life raft scenario, they'll get to a point where the, the last surviving member on that life raft will be codified in place will be very tightly regulated by whatever government systems are in place uh, you know when all of this pans out and what you will eventually have is a an oil and gas company that's essentially uh, been uh, nationalized by whatever governments are, are in place that's a little bit of a pessimistic look but I could totally see that happening yeah you know, I, I can't I have to totally disagree with you that really is taking it to the nth degree of pessimism now. I am an optimist and I'm almost always right, not because I'm smart, because optimism pays off. Pessimism is a self-fulfilling prophecy as well as optimism is. But what I would bring to your attention, uh, Donald, is a book I recently read called Churchill Walking with Destiny. And it charted almost 100 years of his lifetime. Uh, with World War One and World War Two and the depression of the, the 30s and the bombing of, of London. And the world saw things every bit as bad as we're seeing today, and they survived. So where people feel that it's never been this bad, that isn't true. It has been this bad, and we will win. It's a battle between good and evil, and it always appears that evil is winning. Uh, lying is a way of life. There are no morals. There's no ethics. But in the end, people wake up and evil will lose. And I think many writers in analyzing your book, The Great Reset, and Klaus Schwab's book with the, almost the same title, come to realize that before all is lost, the ship will be saved. Oh, yeah. You know what? Uh, I, I'm sorry if I'm coming off as too pessimistic, because I will say that uh, when we were when we were working together on this book, one of the hardest chapters that we had to write was the conclusion, which was, you know, what can we do to push back against this? And we've got a, a whole bunch of really interesting stuff in there. But one kind of development that happened after the book was released was this groundswell of state legislatures across the country saying like, hey, can we push back against this on the state level? And as we kind of looked into it, it was like, yeah, I, I, I think that would actually have a pretty big impact. So states across the country, I think the latest number that we had was like 24. I think it was just under half of states across the country are pursuing proposed legislation, essentially anti-ESG legislation. And the interesting thing about this 
is that, you know, like the concept, Jay, you, you know about this, where it's, um, you know, um, fuel efficiency standards that are passed just in California and the rest of the, the country just has to follow suit because it's such a big market when it comes to cars. They just, you know, it's better for them to just follow the more strict things there. So if we have states across the country, like if, if one, one big state, Texas or Florida, were to say, hey, banks and other financial institutions can't like take these considerations into account when they're judging on uh, what companies get capital or loans or anything like that, it would force the entire banking system to rethink this, this system. So I do think that there is a potential out there for us to fight from a, a, a ground level up against this top-down system. And it has heartened me. I have gotten a lot of uh, optimism from that movement, and it's just on us and everyone that's listening to this to uh, see what your state legislature is doing and to show that you're in support of it. Well, ESG is actually illegal right now. Way back in 1974, the Employee Retirement Investment Security Act, well known then as ERISA, said that all retirement accounts must be invested in a manner that enhances economic returns for the employees. ESG goes entirely against that. And as a matter of fact, my understanding is last year, the Department of Labor came out with a new rule, essentially enhancing ERISA and protecting employees. Where do you see that existing legislation affecting ESG? Yeah, you know, I've, I've heard this argument. Uh, I'm very sympathetic to the argument. And I also think that the, the, the people that are proposing all this ESG, this, the people that are advocating this type of system, they have been very careful, almost suspiciously careful about uh, making the point to say that, you know, we can take care of the environment and we can make money. So it's like, you know, they, they want to pretend like they're pursuing this from just a financial fiduciary, you know, responsible uh, perspective, but we're also doing it to protect the environment and all of that. And I don't know if that's their way of trying to just like end around this, this, this law here that you're, that you're referencing. Uh, I would love to, to see this argument and uh, pursuing it on this track. Um, you know, uh, We'll, we'll see. I don't know enough about well, that specifically. Can but. they really, Donald, can they really make money? I mean, to me, analyzing the investment based on environment, social, and governance scores uh, does not work in the best interest of investment to maximize profits. Are, are there any records of how this is doing? Or in fact, very possibly failing. Yeah, you know, I have seen a couple of things that's suggesting that pursuing ESG investment is actually like uh, not keeping up with certain averages. Um, I don't know if this is a, a short-term thing or if every study is going to show those same results. But I do think, and maybe this is my pessimistic side coming out, but I do think there's a large kind of self-fulfilling prophecy type thing going out there where these investment groups uh, say that they're only going to invest based on ESG. The principles for responsible investment oversees trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars, and they're dedicated to ESG. And at Davos, happening now, we have quotes from Brian Moynihan, who's the CEO and chairman of Bank of America, saying very bluntly, very bluntly, here's a direct quote, uh, the ones that deliver on the metrics will get more capital. 
The ones that don't will get less. It's very simple. That, that, that's, that's a direct quote from this Brian Moynihan guy. And also there's been talk about using the weight of government to award companies with higher ESG scores. So we have quotes uh, talking about, uh, I think from like Klaus Schwab, some uh, World Economic Forum types saying that how we shouldn't be using stimulus programs, this is in the context of the pandemic, to simply fill the cracks of the existing system and instead use it to create a new system. And uh, uh, France, when considering bailing out their airlines in the midst of the pandemic, floated the idea of weighting their bailout money towards environmentally conscious companies. Uh, Joe Biden's Made in America office, uh, which he signed into, you know, the executive order, says that infrastructure programs should buy American goods, which sounds good. But the executive order also had language uh, saying that they would only buy material from responsible and environmentally conscious companies. So I think all of this amounts to interested parties putting a massive thumb on the scale to tip the scales in their favor to ensure that they pick the winners and the losers and they reap the windfalls when those companies do well. Mm-hmm. Just for our listeners, can you tell us who is Klaus Schwab and what does he do with the World Economic Forum and why is it something we should be concerned about? Klaus Schwab is the president and CEO, the founder and CEO of uh, the World Economic Forum. Uh, the World Economic Forum is the uh, organization that puts on the whole Davos thing every year where they have the big elites, the, uh, the big CEOs of all these massive uh, companies fly in on their private jets every year and talk about this type of stuff. And for so long, it was very easy for, for us to just dismiss, just dismiss it of all oh, these people just want to get, you know, drinks and expensive food and go skiing every once in a while. And while they're there, they do a little speech about this, that, and the other, and it never amounts to anything. And I think that almost lulled us into like a false sense of security that these people aren't actually going to do anything. And then once we started uncovering all the great reset stuff, which at first we thought was theoretical and a plan for the future. And then we looked into it and realized that, no, they've been setting up the infrastructure for this for decades. He's the guy that's running the show when it comes to the World Economic Forum. Apparently, Justin Trudeau and a number of our top people, they were trained by Klaus Schwab. Is that is that happening in the U.S. as well? Yeah, so you're referring to uh, the Youth Leadership Council or something like that, which, yeah, uh, Justin Trudeau comes from and a handful of other people from numerous different countries, specifically people with the U.S. Uh, When it comes to that, I don't have any off the top of my head, but I also know that like John Kerry is also very involved in the World Economic Forum and all the stuff that they do. Al Gore, very, I I was just listening to Al Gore talking on stage at Davos going on right now. So yeah, they're all, they're all very, uh, a close knit family of the the global elites. Mm -hmm. Wow. So we do pay attention now. That's for sure. (laughs) That's right. That's right. You've painted a, a marvelous picture for our audience, and, and while it is pessimistic, it's an awakening for people to pay attention. And in my mind, uh, all of these leaders uh, are basically communists, and that's, that's a dirty word for people to use. But if you look at the people going to Davos, the people you mentioned, most of them are coming close to being billionaires. And uh, the reason they're interested in socialism, really communism, is because they can run the world with that system. Pure capitalism 
does not allow the power for rich people to run the world. But socialism and communism very definitely do. And almost all the billionaires, not all, but almost all of the billionaires in this country, recognizing that they have everything money can buy, the only thing they have been unable to buy is the power to run the world. And they think because they built a fortune, they must know how to run your life and my life better than we do. And they essentially become communists because it gives them the chance to uh, have the power over the world. And that's basically what you see at Davos with all these leaders, filthy rich, their own jets, they come in and they talk about how they're going to run our lives. And the more that our listening audience understands it and shares it with their friends and neighbors, the more chance that we will have at beating them back. Let me uh, tell you a couple of things to be optimistic. I don't want to come off as this dark cloud over all the people that are listening here, because there are some reasons to be optimistic. I already mentioned the kind of the grassroots at the state level legislatures pushing against this. I think that is uh, something that we should really pursue and, and uh, focus our attention on. But then there's also a, a couple of other things. I do think that it worked to the advantage of the people pursuing this type of scheme to have kept it kind of very low key where it just kind of flew under the radar and uh, and a lot of people didn't know what it was because we did a poll recently with Rasmussen that asked people what their thoughts on ESG was. Uh, The results came in very clearly that the more people knew about ESG, the less popular it was. And the thing is, not a whole lot of people know what ESG is. So I think that there was a lot of ground to make up on just uh, educating people on what ESG is having them come to the understanding that this is something that we have to fight back against. And then one other thing is the idea of the great reset, that word, that phrase, I should say, that was developed by the World Economic Forum. They created that word. We just started using it. And after we started using it and, uh, and, and uh, basically sullying that name, they've now run away from that to a point where they released a video on their website apologizing for using the term the Great Reset because it just sounds too conspiratorial. That was uh-huh. their words. So the fact that like a, a Justin Haskins and a Donald Kendall over at the Heartland Institute can wave the flag about the Great Reset and get a giant organization like the World Economic Forum to flinch. To me, that's a great sign. So I think that we do have the power. And I do think that there's a lot of progress that we can make here. And uh, I think that if we just keep our attention towards this, we can actually make a potential uh, world-changing impact. Well, that's a fabulous way to end our interview. As I say, this is an interview that people should share with lots and lots of their friends and acquaintances. So this has been Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris interviewing Donald Kendall, who, among other things, is a research fellow for Heartland Socialist Research Center. So thanks for being with us, Donald. Oh, thank you so much for having me.